You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Anne McCoy. Anne, thanks so much for being with me today. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And uh, I wanted to congratulate you on getting the, the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2019. And I, I know that there's a that that was a project attached to that that you've been working on. So, um, so first, congratulations on that. And second, uh, what are you working on for that project exactly? You know, this is the first time um, I've done something that is, in a way, autobiographical. Uh, I, I, it, it really has to do with kind of my early imaginal life. Uh, as you know, a lot of my work has to do with alchemical symbolism. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the things like the death of the king. But alchemy is also about refining, refining ores. It's about the ores. You know, you have gold, silver, mercury, lead. It's about so the metals play a huge role in the alchemical process. And I, I, I grew up in a very strange way. Uh, my adoptive father was, uh, had a degree in engineering and chemistry and some physics, and he, was, he, was, he actually died of radiation poisoning from working at Rocky Flats. But I grew up in a strange scientific community, and I also uh, grew up in a mining community because my father had invented a process for a, for a tungsten byproduct called shelite which was used on the nose cones of rockets and in fluorescence lighting and all kinds of things. But it was one of those things that was used kind of as an auxiliary uh, thing in, the, in that world of kind of, of rocky flats and Los Alamos. And I, uh, and I, I grew up uh, in, a, in, a, in going, we, going to mines. My father owned uh, some mines uh, because he refined this. He also refined this shelite. He had a plant that refined this. So I grew up, and I grew up in in between Colorado and New Mexico. So um, in Colorado, we owned mines, and I used to go visit these mines with my father. And as a child, he also owned um, a, a a share of a mill called the Wolf Tongue Mill in Nederland, Colorado. And as a child, I would go to these mines, and all of these mines had little assay offices. And assay offices were these places filled with all kinds of beakers and flasks where they, they would determine the, the mineral content of the ore brought up. And this Wolf Tongue Mill was an incredible place. It, it, it covered these old um, mining mills covered entire hillsides, uh, you know, with giant buildings going, you know, kind of stepping up all up to the hill, uh, you know, all the way up a mountain. Sometimes they were really vast places, and I used to go in this mill called the Wolf Tongue Mill, and it was fascinating because it was dark and cavernous, and in it were all of these ore crushers where the ore was crushed. And there were these giant tables, you know, like long chutes covered with uh, called ore tables that would move, and the ores would be washed, kind of the way you pan for gold, except on a giant scale. And the and and I was fascinated by this process, 
And I was always fascinated by these laboratories. I would, sometimes as a child, I would clean the glassware in my father's lab. And I, 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 I really had sort of this whole fantasy life inside this wolf tongue mill. I mean, it was, a, it was wild. I mean, it was a wild place because in that area, you had central places things like Central City, Colorado, which had something called the Glory Hole, which was a, an underground catacomb of, thousands of, mi- thousands of miles of mines where, uh, you know, underneath the earth. And you had Leadville and Silver, you know, all of these towns where you had uh, different kinds of mining. And so there was this incredible lore that went with it. I remember we had a very old cleaning lady who was in her 80s when I was a child, and she had been the first white child born in Central City, Colorado. All of the other children had been Chinese, the, the children of Chinese workmen. And I remember hearing these horror stories of that like one time a, a, a mine owner didn't want to pay the Chinese who were all, all incidentally, it's a horrible history, bit of American history. They were all sent back, to, many of them were sent back to China. And he dynamited the shaft shut with, uh, with Chinese workers inside, so they died in there. I mean, they were, it was a very rough place. And I was fascinated also by the Irish. And the, uh, in Netherlands, most of the miners were Irish and Cornish. And in places like Leadville, they were mostly Irish. It was uh, Oscar Wilde, when he came to America, uh, appeared at the Opera House in Leadville. You know, uh, this big Irishman in a bearskin coat. You know, they loved him. But the wow. it was a it was a it was an incredibly harsh reality at the same time. Like uh, there's a huge Irish project that's been done by a guy from Denver, Colorado, named Webb, and he he uh, there are thousands of unmarked graves in the Free Catholic Cemetery in Leadville. The conditions were so harsh that the average age in the, in the of the person of the Irish person being put in the ground in the uh, cemetery was 23 years of age. So between diphtheria, whooping cough, and everything, I mean, I used to ride through these tiny cemeteries in these ghost towns where you'd have grave markers for a whole family of children, that kind of thing. So it was. I was fascinated by this pioneer history. I was fascinated by the history of the mines. I was fascinated because there were still all these old Irish miners who would tell me stories as a child. And um, people like Bert Kelly, you know, who would tell me stories about the mines. I mean, it was really, uh, you would have these miners living in these little, you know, small cabins with oil cloth tablecloths and tin bathtubs and, you know, uh, it was it was really it was like it was like in my ch- I mean I'm 76 and in my childhood it was like there were still remnants of that period. I mean there were still people who cooked on coal stoves and heated bath water, you know, or got it from a central pump. I mean it was there was a kind of the last of the front remnants of a kind of frontier life. And I, I was fascinated, I think, that my early interest in alchemy came from these, these mines and this idea of the refinement of ores. And I feel that it's a, it's a metaphor for life because I feel that, you know, we're always being kind of ground down and put together in new ways. And 
whatever our soul is, you know, that that part is going through a kind of process just the way the ores are. And that alchemy is kind of a, is sort of a, is also is a symbol of this inner process. Um, I, I was also, I don't know, I really, I related to the hardship too, because I think that one of the things I do as an, as an art critic, I'm also an editor at the book, editor at large at the Brooklyn Rail. One of the things I do is I try to help women artists because people like Helene Alon and Raquel Rabinowicz, because women have it so much harder. And I think now women who are involved with an inner life or women who are involved with a spiritual life, this has always been very tough in the art world because we've got this huge kind of Frankfurter theoretical thing that doesn't want anything to do with spirituality or an inner life or a symbolic life and certainly not a symbolic spiritual life. And for me, I guess my early Catholicism and the idea of the alchemical transformation being a metaphor for processes within the psyche has always been very important to me. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, and so this is the first time I've really done something. I've, I just finished a huge drawing called the Wolf Tongue Mill, and in it I'm, I'm actually standing in my communion dress, and I'm inside the mill with all the ore tables, and there, there's this huge, I'm having, I see this vision of these, the wolves are around me, and this huge vision of the Virgin Mary as a, wearing a lamp, uh, like a miner's lamp for a head. And I feel that, um, you know, for me, I think in terms of alchemical symbolism and just in terms of my own life, the idea of the divine feminine, the idea of that aspect of spirituality, and also it's very much part of alchemy where you have the, the both the male and the female aspects. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, it's funny. I'm 76. And, you know, I'm coming into the final stretch of my life. Um, and I feel that, you know, I feel a sense of sadness and frustration in a way because uh, the art world isn't really, doesn't really support the kind of ideas I have. I mean, I think there are groups, larger and larger groups of people who do. I think Hilma of Quint, the, exhibit, the Hilma of Quint show, I think really opened up a whole portal for this kind of thinking. Uh, it's still not mainstream in terms of, you know, the, the whole art academic thing is still kind of stuck in 1940s, you know, little, you know, Frankfurt School, maybe moving up into Derrida and the post-Lacanians, but uh, it's, it's pretty stuck in an older uh, paradigm. And I think there's starting to be a huge paradigm shift. And I think that women are really the ones who are going to usher this in in a strange way. Uh, so what funny. You're doing I mean, for the Guggenheim touches on, on, on all of this. I mean, it's 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 the narrative about the minds. It's your it's your childhood, but it's a series that that explores your childhood through these minds and yeah, and through as a kind of process. You know, the the ores, the refining of the ores, is really kind of a metaphor for kind of an inner spiritual life that I feel is important, especially when you're coming into the final stretch. I mean, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and the entire goal of one's life in that religion was that one's soul should be prepared for death and, that, and sort of the evolution of the soul. 
And that was always very, very important to me, this idea of the evolution of the soul, this idea of trying to become a better and better person and to make a better and better contributions to life in not just a material way, really, but a spiritual way. It goes back to the old Gaelic notion of a non-materialist society. It's an old Irish notion that one should not be doing something for money, but for the betterment of mankind and for the betterment of one's soul. And for kind of, I think, what the alchemists call the world soul. That we're really, it's part, it's, it's, a, it's a very different concept. Um, I, think that, I think that this is starting to come around again. Uh, people, you know, a lot of this kind of thinking in terms of art was suppressed. I mean, a lot of the practitioners of these kinds of aesthetics, people like Paval Florensky got a bullet in the back of his head in the gulags in 37. And it's interesting that now people are reading all of Florensky's art historical. He's a, he was a great genius. He was like the Leonardo da Vinci of Russia. And they're starting to read his aesthetics and really think about that uh, this is a kind of path not taken. Um, this kind of marriage of science and spirit. And, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that we're... I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think that there are starting to be voices like this in the art world. I mean, I have a lot of readers at the rail because I write from this standpoint. Um, in terms of my own work, I'm hoping to show in October. Um, it's been very hard because, uh, you know, people involved in pursuits like I was, you know, right now in the art world, everybody wants uh, kind of speculators. They want people who've just gotten out of Yale and have a wet sheepskin who are doing very kind of trendy cartoony work or whatever and that they, there's a lot of art speculation. Um, it's still very hard for serious women artists who are really interested in complex and, or mystical ideas. I try Absolutely. to help as many of them. Well, that's what's also, uh, you know, amazing about what you're doing. And at this point, so, um, I mean, to, to talk about that difficulty a little bit, um, or even more, to get into the Guggenheim grant, how many times did you apply for the Guggenheim grant before you got it? I applied 39 times. I mean, my biggest, my 39 times, my biggest problem was that just have, you have to get four people to recommend you every year. And I thought my friends were going to run the other way. I never turned down Guggenheim recommendations for friends just because I feel I owe people big time. Um, yeah, 39 times. I mean, when... Uh, so, so, so let me ask you in, in, in that because there's a number of things there. How did you ask for the friend recommendations every year? Because it is, like you say, the biggest issue. You had to ask for recommendations 39 times from similar people. I tried to, I tried to ask different friends. I mean, I, I had done a, a thing on Allison Knowles, and I arranged, I, Carol Lee Schneemann was a dear friend of mine, and I arranged uh, a, 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 a very important conversation for the rail between Allison Knowles and Carol Lee. And it was interesting because Allison, it was kind of, they were, and Carol Lee died soon after. And one of the, and it was funny because that was my parting gift to Carol Lee. And Carol Lee's parting gift to me was a Guggenheim recommendation. And I think that may have helped it a lot. Lenore Mallon recommended me. I mean, 
uh, that, but I think that may have helped tip the balance. Um, it's, it's generally um, getting, it depends on the committee, it's a crapshoot. You know, like, uh, like uh, there would be people on the committee who hate my work, like Dorothea Rockburn hates my work. So if she was on the committee, I knew I would never get it. But then you would always hope that there were people, I mean, I probably lucked out and there were probably some older women on the committee who really understood my work. I think that part of the Guggenheim thing is you never know who the committee is. Uh, and they often, I think, give it to younger people. Uh, so I think I just lucked out getting a, a, a good committee. Well, I think you did, but also you submitted it 39 times. I mean, that's kind of an extraordinary endurance in itself. And, 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 and given, like, the, the difficulty of being a woman, of the content of your work, as you were saying, you know, all of this, this, this work, not only was it more, was it difficult, is, and it is difficult to be a woman in the art world, but also doing work that's, that's about these kinds of ideas um, is, is, wasn't so popular. Uh, how is it that you didn't get kind of jaded and bitter after 15 or 20 and kept submitting? Because there are so many people who feel that after that much time, after submitting that much, that everybody must be against them, that this simply is kind of a sham. This is something that's rigged, you know. How is it that you didn't... Well, I, I mean, that I think that, you know, I, I think... Uh, I can't remember if Hilma was before or just about as I was getting it. Um, uh, I think that there has been a shift. Of, like in 2013, I, did an, I was a guest editor at the Brooklyn Rail, and I did an issue on the unconscious. And I had people like Marina Warner as contributors. And, I, and they had like a huge number of hits. I mean, Fong called me up, and he said, what the hell did you do? He said, we are having so many hits. He said, that issue is so popular. How did you get, and I, what did you do? And I said, I told people like Nalini Milani and, you know, Susan B and a few people to put it on their Facebook page, uh, but I didn't really do anything. And I think that it, it showed me that there was some kind of huge interest. You know, the art world has been kind of in a, I, I think of it like a flat earth society. You know, you had a kind of the heavy formalist thing, and then you had kind of the Whitney program, Adornoites, and, you know, the Benjamin Buchlos of the world, you know, flattening the whole thing out and so that everything was political, everything was about materialism, dialectical materialism. And I think that what happened is that, for me, art is, really is about dimensionality. And that includes the spiritual dimension. I have no problems. I love George Gross. I love Otto Dix. I have no problems with political art. But I, I really want art that has greater dimensions and greater dimensions of psyche. I mean, my God, look at Francis Bacon's portrait of, no, of course, Pope of Innocent. Course. And, 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 and as you're saying, that's being uh, potentially embraced more now and, and, and as evidenced by you getting this. But for, for women listening and for women who are... Are, are still struggling to get recognition in the art world to get a Guggenheim. My my question is how how were you able to keep applying after feeling um, after recognizing all these things? Because there may be a shift now, but there wasn't that shift 
10 years ago or 15 years ago. So how... I mean, I wish I could... I, I, have, I don't have family money, and I've always uh, existed by... I used to sell when I was younger, but I've always existed with tons of horrible adjunct teaching jobs. And, you know, I think that being a patty helps, you know? I, I mean, I was thinking of those Irish miners, you know? Are, and, and I think that, that, and that kind of frontier spirit, you know, I have, I have a lot of that in me, you know, I have a lot of that Irish farmer stock in me. I'm, you know, I've always been someone who would do anything. You know, I worked, I worked training horses to put myself through UCLA graduate school. Um, that's very, as a that's horse trainer. And that makes it clear because that frontier attitude, and as, as you talked, reaching back into your family and your life, that was work, work, work until, until you drop in the fields, right? The, the, the attitude was an extraordinary work ethic, really almost a Victorian work ethic. Maybe that was coming from, but, it was, but, it's, but it's an incredible work ethic. I mean, I mean it's funny. My, 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 real, my, my father who died, my real family name is Malloy, and they always say that I have 43 cousins in Ireland, and they always say, and more in Ireland, they always say that, uh, you know, you can get twice as much work out of a Malloy as you can out of a normal person. And so I was always just, you know, working really hard. Like at one point I was teaching horrible adjunct jobs. I was teaching at Barnard, Columbia, and School of Visual Arts, three places simultaneously. I mean, for very low pay, um, plus doing my work. I mean, and I've never had a studio assistant. I mean, I could really use one now because I'm 76 and I'm running down physically. I mean, I'm just, I'm not running down. I just don't have the energy I used to. But, um, you know, it has not been easy. I mean, it has not been easy. I still have, you know, horrible economic, uh, uh, you know, problems sometimes. And, you know, know, it's, it's it's not easy. I mean, I'm still... You know, like I've been teaching online a lot for Jung Academy Online. I've been doing a lot of different things. And uh, I, you know, I've, I really, uh, I've always done a lot of different things. Uh, I don't know. Being an artist is never easy. That's true. It isn't. Well, I'm so glad you said that. And, and, your, and your background fits into that as, as, as well as this, um, this series for the Guggenheim um, I'm so excited to to see these in your next exhibit. I I want to ask you one last question, a little off topic, which is, what are you reading at the moment? Oh, what am I reading? Oh my God, what am I? Let's see. I'm just. I'm, uh, you you always ask me that, and then I, and then I, uh, I I'm just walking over to my desk. Well, actually, I've been reading. I've been reading. I've been reading Paul Florensky again. I've been doing a lot of reading of Paul Florensky. I've been reading his Beyond Vision and, uh, and, and the Metaphysics of Love. I've, I've really gotten into Paul Florensky. I did quite a bit of reading on him. Um, I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm reading at the moment. Uh, I'm, re- I'm reading a book by, a funny, a strange book by somebody named Sass called uh, Madness and Modernism because I'm, always interested in, in mental illness and art. Uh, I read alchemy every day. You know, I'm always reading alchemical texts. Always reading alchemical texts. Uh, I mean, I, I, I never go through a day where I'm not looking at al- an alchemical text or reading an alchemical text. 
And I, I read the Greeks. I read the Greeks every day. You know, I, I, I started re. I know this sounds crazy, but um, I every about every ten years, I reread the Iliad and the Odyssey. You know, I think that it's important uh, to. I don't know. It's just it's just something that's very important for me. Uh, I want to. I don't. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. So, I think that I think that that's. I don't know. I there. It's funny. I mean, for me, the the I, I was a classics major, and my uh, a, a godfather was Donald Sutherland, the tran- Greek translator, not the the actor. Um, the the Greek world for me is very. Um, it's it's like my world. You know, I, I think of the Greek world every day. It's like it's like a it's like a present reality to me. And I think in terms of you know, I, this is what makes me so sad with this horrible. I mean, I'm all for enlarging the canon. Lord knows, I was I taught Native American art for years, so I'm all for enlarging the canon. But this assault on 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 Western civilization is really getting to me, because I the fact that I mean. Anybody anywhere in the world can benefit from, I mean, the, the things the Greeks are talking about apply to every culture, people in every culture. And I, I'm also tired of this terrible sort of anti-Christian animus, you know, of judging Christians by the Christian far right. I mean, it's such a complex legacy, and it's been around for so long. And I'm, a t- I, I'm tired of these attacks on the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm tired of these attacks on any kind of spirituality. And I'm tired of the woke thing has become a kind of religion. It's become, it's a sectarianism. It's become a kind of sectarianism being used by people to, um, when, when, when things are coming apart, when people have large psychotic areas and they cannot contain chaos, one way they do it is by joining a sect. And a sect has different certain parameters and certain rules. And I certainly understand a lot of students who are having a terrible time in life who are, you know, many students are suicidal. Many of them are depressed. And so the woke thing has become like a, a religious sect where, you know, if you just get every, every gender pronoun perfect or every trigger point or this or that, you know, everything will kind of be perfect. And it's a kind of naive view of Marxism with, you know, forgetting the, you know, the 40 million who died in the gulags or the 70 million who died under Mao. You know, it's a kind of strange, naive view of this. And, and the woke thing, which it really rejects spirituality, is, I don't know, I, I think that that we should not be tr- completely trashing Western civilization. You know, I really don't. I mean, without, with, I mean, without the Greeks, we would not have had even the idea of democracy. I'm, I'm very concerned about this. I'm very concerned about uh, this sort of assault on, on culture and learning that we're seeing right now. Well, I'm glad you said that. I, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, very important in an ongoing dialogue that's, that's really challenging. Um, 
Anna, I want to thank you for talking to me today. I want to wish you well with your upcoming work and the, and the Guggenheim Project. Thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Bless you. It's always a pleasure. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.